Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DoD, industry, and other subject matter experts who explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. So with that, I'm really excited to have Daniel Rice back on the show. And as many of you know, he's a non-resident fellow here at Mitchell and is currently serving as the China military and political subject matter expert at Marine Corps University's Brute Krulak Center for Innovation and Future Warfare. Dan is also the COO of the open source geopolitical intelligence company Foreign Brief. Mitchell Institute recently released Dan's latest paper titled Hardened Shelters and UCAVs, Understanding the Threat Facing Taiwan. So Dan, Welcome back to the show. As always, it's awesome to have you back. Hey, Slick. It's always great to be on the Aerospace Advantage. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. So, Dan, last time we talked about Taiwan and China, it was right after those exercises. And it's hard to believe that, you know, but it's been a few months. So what's happened since then? Yeah. So um, really quickly, pretty much after those exercises around Taiwan, things cooled off a little bit. We saw there was a decrease in the actual amount of incursions into Taiwan's ADIS. That's their air defense identification zone. And things kind of went back to normal, at least around Taiwan. But some other big things really happened. And one of the biggest ones, as I'm sure our audience has heard, or at least seen in the news, was the 20th Party Congress of the Chinese Communist Party. And that really kind of set the stage for what the the CCP will look like for the next at least five years. And there are some big takeaways there, but the ones that our audience should be aware of at the very least is it looks like the Central Military Commission, pretty much the head of the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, looks like it's much more geared towards modernization efforts and joint operations moving forward. And that's because of two key people that are now the vice chairman of the CMC. So those are the big things. Other than that, you know, the one thing that I'd really like to flag, at least for our audience, is that while the number of incursions into Taiwan's ADIS might have dropped immediately after the exercises, we can't forget that the threat is still there and it's still one of the biggest potential flashpoints for conflict between the U.S. and China. So Dan, you know, your paper has a really bold title and I like it. So can you walk us through your main findings? So the three main things that I found are that the airfields, the PLA airfields directly across from Taiwan, at least the ones that I examined, seem to be more developed than what we had thought in the unclassified realm. And that goes into things like facilities for personnel for fuel storage, for munitions storage. And I also, in the report, cover some of the hardened underground and concealed aircraft shelters, of roughly 94 of them at five different airfields that previously had not really been talked about in the unclassified realm. So that was one of the big takeaways. The other big takeaway is that China has been converting its legacy aircraft, primarily the J-6, which is a spinoff of the MiG-19, They've been converting those into unmanned combat aerial vehicles. And what what I cover in the paper is that 
China is actually also potentially converting other variants of, of its aircraft, such as the Q5, the J7, and the J8, into these UCAVs. Um, the focus in the paper, however, is primarily on the J6s and maybe some J7s, and it involves using the hardened shelters that I identify as a way to conceal this capability for the appropriate time when the PLA decides that, hey, you know, today's the day we're going to attack Taiwan, and then they can surreptitiously emerge, these J6s can surreptitiously emerge from the shelters and then fly maybe pre-programmed routes and be used as some sort of supersonic cruise missile or weapons delivery platform against Taiwan. And I kind of wrap that third finding. It's more that con-ops finding that I cover in the paper. Uh, so it, it's a pretty interesting topic. I use a lot of satellite imagery. I put some really good tables outlining all of the detail for folks that like to dive into the data. And what I would really like to see is people use the information that I provided and hopefully have some additional analysis on at least these airfields, if not more airfields, and even more so on these J6s that are being converted into these UCAVs, because there's a lot there. And a little bit of further background just on the J6s and the idea of using them as supersonic cruise missiles. I was talking with Steve Trimble of Avweek, and he had mentioned that in World War II, the U.S. had actually done something somewhat similar to this in Operation Aphrodite, and they were retrofitting old bombers with explosives and sending them at targets in um, German-occupied France, and they were trying to take out targets there. So there's some historical precedent for this kind of action. Yeah, it's, it's massively interesting, Dan. But I have to say, on, on the surface, it sounds like folks in the military and intel community should probably already know about some of this. So what made you decide to uh, look into this topic? You know, that's right. And I, I tried to make it very clear, right, that what I did and what I researched was all open source. It's all unclassified. And I'm sure there's men and women in uniform or in the intel community that know the exact day that the first brick was laid on these hardened, concealed and buried shelters. But why I decided to look into this is primarily because I was doing some research for the Mitchell Institute, actually, for one of our workshops. And I was looking at these airfields, and I kept running across different aspects of these airfields. And I was saying, holy smokes, you know, what's going on here? And I did a little bit of digging and looking around and started tracking these shelters. And I'd run into another airfield, and I was like, oh my gosh, what's going on here, right? And that just kept happening. And so that obviously that really piqued my interest. And so when I did a, a search online just to do, you know, do my due diligence to make sure that somebody had not already covered this, I didn't really find anything. And so obviously that meant that there was something there that wasn't necessarily readily known out in the public that probably should be covered. Uh, so like I said, I just kept digging and I kept digging and I ran across more information. I talked with the right folks that know an incredible amount about the People's Liberation Army Air Force or the PLAF. And we had discussions and they gave me some more ideas and I took those and I ran with it. So it turned into a really interesting research uh, for me, at least. I like looking at imagery and I know for the public, this probably will help people understand exactly what the PLAF has at the very least on the airfields closest to Taiwan. And, you know, for, for complete transparency here, if we were to get in a conflict with China over Taiwan, 
these are the airfields that would be the forward operating airfields of a lot of the aircraft coming out of China. So whether it be us or Taiwan, they would need to be suppressed airfields. Got it. Now, Dan, I want to talk about this idea of open intel analysis for a minute. I mean, it, it's what you basically just executed. And we also saw a case where open analysis helped highlight China's nuclear weapons uh, breakout last summer. Also, we had a friend of Mitchell's, Mike Dam, who just released a paper where he highlighted some findings and he's observed that the tie to potential jamming capability China might be growing to degrade our space operations. So how do you see this role of all this work playing into things? So Mike Dom's great, and he actually helped review the paper that I released. Thank you to Mike if he's listening. So open source Intel, there's a couple nuances here, right? Open source Intel, if you say that specifically, a lot of times that relates to how the military might use open source information to actually come up with a suggested course of action in the military side, right? But open source in general, there's really three main lines of effort that we see. Number one is, like I mentioned, open source intelligence, that work that the military and the intel community does that uses all of that open source information to come up with likely courses of action or likely patterns that they can then translate into military action. Now, there's a second line of effort here, which is open source analysis, which is done that might cover things that are already known in the classified world, but it's not readily available or readily known by the public. And that's something, and I think that's where this paper falls in. But the whole point of that is if you're able to use open sources, unclassified information, and cover a topic that really skirts the edge of what is classified and what is readily available for the public to consume, you can actually bring a lot of understanding and knowledge to the public debate on how to address a certain issue, right? So that's what I was trying to get after in this, is that I'm sure there's folks in the classified world that know, like I mentioned, the, the very first day that a brick was laid on these shelters. But if the public is not aware of that, then they won't have a very strong understanding of the threat that does actually face Taiwan. So there's actually a third line of effort here too, and there's one where folks that do open source now with the tools that are available, one can think of satellite imagery like what I used, but they're able to get very high fidelity information on open sources. And sometimes what happens is that people using that open source information will actually run across stuff that has not necessarily been considered by that classified community. And in that case, like what Mike Dom covered, it really is a wake-up call to everybody, both in the classified and in the public communities, to say, hey, this is an issue that we should look more into, or hey, we need to really understand what's going on here. And then obviously from there, you'll have efforts in both the unclassified and the classified realm Then that will then explore that topic set. Yeah. And, and Dan... I you know, all of this makes sense. And, and I really want to dig into uh, a little bit more on what's going on here with your particular issue, because as a fighter pilot, when I hear hardened aircraft shelter, I understand what that means. It doesn't necessarily pique any interest, you know, because I know that that's, if I was building an airfield, I'd build some of those. Can you really give us an idea of, of what it means for trying to be doing this and what these are, maybe when and why they were built and how might they impact how we're thinking about a conflict with Taiwan? There's a lot of detail that we can dive into, but I'll start off with when. And the when part of this is actually extremely interesting for, for me as a China watcher. So 
through the imagery analysis, I, I kind of uncovered that they were built sometime around 2008, right? And why is that important? Because if you look at the overall picture of China and their grand strategy, 2008 was really a turning point for, for the CCP. It was right during the financial crisis. It was when the CCP was looking at the outside world and they realized that the banking systems that the West had put in place were pretty fragile and that they kind of came up with this thought that they couldn't really rely on the Western world and, and the institutions that it had built for stability. And that's a really key theme for the CCP, stability. So if they were not able to rely on the West, they realized that they needed to at least harden themselves, in this case quite literally, by making sure that if things were to go to zero, that China could self-rely. And obviously this translates into the security realm by if you are now a self-reliant country, you have to be worried about conflicts kicking off. And they were, they were pretty worried about the U.S. possibly going in and actually attacking China on the mainland. That's a historical thing that you see recurring. And so the first shelters, really, they were put in place sometime around that time frame. Now, with the shelters and the capabilities that they actually bring to the fight, these shelters, specifically the hardened, concealed, and underground shelters, they're fairly robust. They're about 20 by 30 meters. They're not the largest shelters. They're not meant to be Sometimes when we talk about Chinese aircraft shelters, you think there's a whole mountainside that's hollowed out, right? It's not that. They do have those, but those are different than what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about are frontline, specifically built aircraft shelters that they've actually done all sorts of plumbing with, which sounds funny, but they've put fuel lines in to these shelters. They've put water lines into the shelters. They have drainage systems. And the point there is that these shelters act as a place where, after conducting a sortie, they can bring their aircraft back in, in the shelter, and then do all of the rearmament, refuelment, the washdown, all the maintenance, and then they can send the plane back out to conduct another sortie. And now why is that important? Well, if you think about during a time of conflict, if I were to have my own airplanes, like you mentioned, Slick, right? If I were to have an airfield, I would want to have my planes have a location where once they land and they've completed their combat operation, that they can then rearm, refuel in relative safety. And I say relative because clearly these things are not invincible, but it is much better to have a shelter where if there was a follow-on attack from your adversary on the airfield, that the aircraft would be much more survivable. One of the other things that these shelters actually have done for the PLA Air Force is that because the facilities have the capability for refueling and for water within the shelter itself and rearmament, that it's actually allowed them to cut down the number of maintenance personnel per airframe. And that's a pretty big deal. And obviously that takes into account the other tools that they would be using, such as trucks or actual physical tools that they would use on the maintenance. But cutting down that number of personnel also means that their process of running maintenance real-time during an operation is going to be a little bit more efficient. So those were the really big takeaways. The final part about the shelters is that if you're wrapping in the UCAV idea into it, the shelters are pretty much good for one airframe, of the larger, more modern type. But 
that is if that airframe is going through constant maintenance. You need to have room within the shelter for a maintenance crew to move around, right? But if you are concealing and storing something like an older, smaller J6, then you could feasibly fit maybe two, maybe three J6s within a shelter if you're not running constant maintenance on it. And if those are on a one-way trip, you really just have to do some ready checks on it, make sure it can take off, and then you don't really care about it. That's how these shelters really play into the overall idea. Yeah, and I appreciate that view from that lens, Dan, because I think that really does point out a lot of the significance there. So I want to ask you kind of a two-part question here. One, why are they calling these airfields? I mean, they look a lot more like what we would call an air base. And two, what is it about these airfields that makes them really notable? This is a little bit of a PLA, military analyst wonky point. China refers to all of its airfields, or what we would consider airbases, as airfields. And it's Jitang. So indirect translation, it translates to airfield. It's just as simple as that, but this is a really important point for folks that do language-enabled analysis, is that when we're looking at issue sets, right, we can't just directly transliterate what we think something is into a foreign language and have it translate correctly. So that's why it's really important to have that level of nuance in the language analysis to understand that, oh, you know, if we're talking about an airbase in China, it is not actually referred to as an airbase, but an airfield. So why these airfields are notable? I, to be completely fair, I picked a limited number of airfields to examine specifically because, number one, if I was going to do every airfield, it, it would be in you know, hundreds of pages and probably not something that would, we would be able to publish at the Mitchell Institute in a foreign paper at the very least. But also because these airfields specifically are within the combat radius of Taipei or Kaohsiung and those are two main points, pretty much the northeasternmost and southwesternmost points on Taiwan that could reasonably be at risk of attack. And so when I say combat radius, what I mean, and I do define it in the paper, but it's the time or the distance between taking off at an airfield, traveling to your target destination, loitering over that target destination. I think the, the direct like actual numbers, two circles over the location, and then flying back. So these five airfields are all within that kind of combat radius, which means that most, if not all, of the aircraft that China could employ in an attack over Taiwan would be able to conduct an operation from these airfields without needing in-air refueling, which is pretty critical when you're talking about a large number of aircraft heading to a specific target. When you add in-air refueling, it complicates the actual operation. And China, while it does have in-air refueling, it's still growing its number of tankers, specifically the Y-20 was the one they actually showed off at the China Air Show. Uh, but they just don't have them in quite the same numbers that we do. So it makes it much more feasible for them to conduct operations out of these airfields. Basically, what you're saying is these airfields look like they've gone through a lot of upgrades and it's possible that they might not just be a deployed location, right? So can you put this into context for us? Because, you know, when I think about China, I'm thinking, why would these places be deployed locations? Aren't they in China? Yeah, thanks, Slick. So 
this is where it's really useful to put on your China hat and think through the China lens as to why they would consider these deployed locations. And so one of the things that you have to remember is that China has been referenced as a geographic island, and that's because some of the geographic features that surround its borders. So when China is thinking about a conflict, they think about conflict occurring and it's near abroad or immediately on its periphery. And therefore, what they envision is they would need to sustain some sort of attack on mainland China and then survive that attack and then be able to go on the counterattack. So when you say deployed locations, a lot of that is because they envisioned that they would ha- these airfields would have to sustain some sort of attack, likely from the U.S. or from Taiwan, and then be able to actually go out and go on the counterattack. So you wouldn't want to put your most advanced fighters right on what you envision as being the front lines, the thing that has to absorb the blows. So that's why they've been, at least in the past, recorded as deployed locations. Whether or not that changes in the future, as China takes a more aggressive stance against Taiwan and the South China Sea, that remains to be seen. All right, Dan, so let's talk about the other part of your paper where you focus on the unmanned combat aerial vehicles or UCAVs. What are they? And just break this down. What's this all about? Essentially, what what I cover in the paper is a UCAV that is a legacy platform converted into an like like we said, a, an unmanned combat area vehicle. And what that means, we actually have a program in the U.S., the QF-16, that we've done. You pretty much, you either pull out the cockpit or you slap in some new technology into the airframe and then you can turn it into an RPA, a remotely piloted aircraft. So what I cover in the paper is the facility that looks like it is converting the J-6 aircraft that are retired into UCAVs. And then I also cover finding some of these J6s and maybe some J7s even on some of the airfields that I examined. And they're likely the UCAV variant. And I say that too because there's a guy, friend, Gerald Brown, who's actually been on the podcast before talking about the Taiwan ADIS. And he covers pretty extensively the number of incursions into Taiwan's aid is, and he tracks it in a great table that's available to the public. And if you look at the table, not very frequently do older airframes come into his data. And so, you know, it begs the question, well, if you can see these older aircraft on the airfields, but they're not actually going into Taiwan's aid is, what are they doing? And the way that I've seen some reporting talk about the J-6 UCAVs is that they're known to be able to operate either pre-programmed flight paths or like an RPA, have a joystick with a controller that can fly them around. And Mike Dom actually, he provided some good information too that discussed how China is not just converting the J-6s, but they could feasibly convert other aircraft. Though, as I mentioned, there's about 1400 j6s that they can convert so maybe the demand's not there to convert all these airframes but it is a clever way to take something that otherwise would be a more or less useless platform something that actually sid trevathan he he said you know folks would buy these things for ten thousand dollars and take them on joyrides these j6s 
So yeah, well, so. well Dan, let, let's let's hop into that quickly because in your paper you talk about converting other legacy airframes into UCABs. So is that what you're talking about here with these J6s and 7s for those that might not be familiar with those nomenclatures? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Q5s, a very old aircraft. J6, uh, again, it's a MiGs 19 knockoff. J7s and J8s, those are all older platforms that China is trying to modernize and get out of their inventories and converting them into UCAVs is one way to do that, right? And it's a way to get an effect with something that would otherwise just go to, you know, something like the Boneyard. And so it seems to be a, a pretty clever way to get the most bang for the buck, or as we would say at the Mitchell Institute, right, cost per effect. I definitely couldn't agree more. I mean, when you think about RPA type technology and converting it into something that you were just going to park anyway, if you can turn it into a, a cruise missile or a remotely piloted uh, weapon, then then why not? So sure. it's really interesting how you break that down. So can you tie all of this together with your findings, you know, between the UCAVs, these hardened aircraft shelters and the locations and what that means for potential war between China, Taiwan, and, and how the U.S. might be involved? So what I, I've dubbed in the paper as a cicada strategy really ties all this stuff together. And the strategy as conceptualized or theorized is that if you have shelters and you have UCAVs that could be cruise missiles, what you could do is you could pre-position them at the hardened shelters on these five airfields within combat radius of Taiwan, and then you can send them off maybe on a one-way trip certainly to soak up some anti-air systems that Taiwan would have or that the U.S. might employ in the conflict. And then after you've attrited that front line of UCAVs, then you could follow on with your more advanced fighters onto the airfields, reuse the hardened shelters for those modern aircraft, and then have sustained combat operations with those modern aircraft over Taiwan. And so, like I said, I call it the cicada strategy, but realistically, what it really is, is just having something pre-positioned at these airfields for a first strike and then following on with your additional assets and pushing them out to the frontier and from there carrying out follow-on strikes. Well, Dan, I know that we're, we're getting close to the end here, and I just really want to emphasize, obviously, Mitchell doesn't publish papers for the sake of publishing. We normally try to have a big key takeaway and recommendation, or we're discussing something that otherwise supports our airmen and guardians. And I also want to throw out to the audience that these papers are free to check out, download, and view from our website. So please take a look at that. But I want to ask you point blank, why should we Americans and why should airmen and guardians care about this? The reason that it really matters is because when we're looking at any sort of conflict between China and the U.S. that involves Taiwan, and when we're looking at the potential targets that we would have to really suppress, they seem to be much more robust than at least the public is aware of. So when you're looking, and, and Slick, you're probably much more knowledgeable about this than I am, but from my experience speaking with bombers, when you're looking at something like a hardened shelter, it is not necessarily an easy target to take out. And I'll qualify that with depending on the munition that you have. So if you have a stand-in weapon, something like a bunker buster, it's not as difficult to take out a single shelter. But that requires that you have a platform that would be able to penetrate China's IADS, Integrated Air Defense System. So you need to have a platform with the right munition 
in order to get that kind of effect on a hardened shelter. On the flip side, if you're working with standoff munitions, something like a Jasmine or an Elrazum, because it is a standoff and it has to travel a long ways to its target, number one, target fidelity might be a little bit off as compared to dropping directly on it. But number two, you're not going to have the same kind of bunker buster capability on that munition. And so you'll need more of those munitions to get a similar effect on the hardened shelter. So why does that matter for our airmen and our guardians? And, you know, I would even venture to say our industrial base is that when we're looking at target sets that have these more complicated targets than we'll call, uh, you know, a sun shelter on a ramp, then it requires a higher payload. It requires more munitions. And that's something that we've seen from the war in Ukraine that is clearly fairly fragile. I believe javelins was the issue, right? We're running out of javelins because we're sending them all to Ukraine and our industrial base can't keep up the building capacity to resupply that stock of munitions. That is really the big takeaway is that while we're looking at the targets on China that we might have to suppress, and there are various ways to do that, but we need to have not only the airmen in this case and the guardians also looking at these targets, figuring out the targeting solution, knowing what's available to them, but we also have to supply them with what they need to actually get the job done. And if we can't, then obviously we risk not being able to suppress these airfields and potentially not being able to stop or at least slow conflict over Taiwan. Well, Dan, I do have to make this comment and because I know that you obviously are a brilliant strategist and see the big picture, but I think probably hanging out with some fighter pilots and bomber pilots around the Mitchell Institute, you gave a pretty good technical and tactical level description of weapon selection and weaponeering in your answer. So I, I've got to say bravo to you. Uh, really, really good job. Your analysis is spot on. So, <laughs> you know, we've come a long way since we first met a couple of years ago, Dan. You're really yeah, speaking right. the air power speak. I like it. All right, Dan, again, I know we're always tight on time and I appreciate you coming here. So I just want to open up for you if you've got any parting shots. Yeah. So only one parting shot. And clearly this paper is what it is. It's a paper. So what I would like to see is maybe it's myself, maybe it's somebody else, but doing more analysis of the airfields on China and maybe even port facilities, different things that we need to consider when we're thinking about how we can credibly deter. Because obviously this is not warmongering. This is nothing more than if you need to deter an adversary, you need to have the capability on your side of the house that is credible and can actually get the effect necessary to have them stop and say, wait a minute, do I win this conflict a hundred times out of a hundred? No. And then they will not take the action. So it all has to translate into what we actually have in our arsenal with our capabilities that can actually achieve deterrence against China in this realm. And that will take more research. It'll take digging into a little bit more about these UCAVs, figuring out where they're going and looking at more facilities. 
Yeah, Dan, again, this is a case where the pieces in the sum create the issue at large in a larger whole, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So I appreciate you diving into one specific area and then indicating how if we do this in various veins, especially like when you started mentioning ports and what's going on there, uh, I think we'll start laying out a broader picture of just how quickly China is really taking their military into a realm that's never been seen before. And obviously, we're having challenges, but not only challenges from a technological standpoint, but just from infrastructure, uh, positioning, et cetera, is just going to be a very tough nut to crack. So with that, Dan, always want to say thanks for joining me on the podcast. It's great to hear your voice and your insight. Yeah. Thank you so much, Like It's always great to talk with you and hopefully we'll see you soon. Absolutely. Cheers. Cheers. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.